Let's turn to Isaiah chapter 46. Isaiah chapter 46. That's not going to be our text today. Our text today is going to be in Samuel, 1 Samuel 16. But I thought that we could start to put things in the context when we talk about the sovereignty of God. The sovereignty of God. God the Almighty, Yahweh of the Old Testament, Yahweh of the New Testament, the sovereignty of God. And when we read Isaiah 46, I want you to think about God's majesty, how wonderful and mighty he is, and how ultimately he is in control. God is sovereign. He is in control. Isaiah 46, starting at verse 9. Remember the former things long past, for I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is no one like me. Declaring the end from the beginning. And from ancient times, things which have not been done. Saying, my purpose will be established. And I will accomplish all my good pleasure. All my good pleasure. Calling a bird of prey from the east. The man of my purpose from a far country. Truly, I have spoken. Truly, I will bring it to pass. I have planned it. Surely, I will do it. God is ultimately sovereign. And today, we're going to talk about the sovereignty of God and how he ultimately is in control of everything. That's right, everything. We're not in control of who's the president. We're not in control of anything. God is ultimately in control. So we're going to talk about how his sovereignty overcomes the worldly obstacles that we face, including that of grief and fear, the fear of man, and how his sovereignty overcomes worldly desires, and how his sovereignty overcomes worldly power and influence. Because God ultimately is sovereign. He is in control. So let's turn to 1 Samuel chapter 16. Just a little background. Samuel is a prophet and a judge in the Old Testament. His mother dedicated him to the service of the Lord permanently. And he comes along when the time of the judges is over. And there's a lot of corruption. Uh, There's corrupt priests, Eli and Hophnius, uh, or uh, Hophnius and uh, Phinehas, uh, sons of Eli. The priests are corrupt. Uh, During the time of the judges, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And now this is about 300 years after Joshua leads the people into the promised land of Israel. Moses has taken them out of Egypt And he's gone to Mount Nebo and he's died there. 
Joshua has led the people into battle, into the promised land. He's already led them through Jericho, all these areas. And now we have this period of the judges where everybody's rebellious. God's promised them the land flowing with milk and honey. They get there and they're rebellious. And in comes Samuel. In comes Samuel, a man who's dedicated to the Lord. And in verse 16, or chapter 16, verse 1, we read, Now the Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul, since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have selected a king for myself among his sons. So what's happening here is the people say, we want a king for ourselves. They didn't have a king yet. It's the time of the judges. God was supposed to be their king. During the Exodus, God was the one who led them in the pillar of cloud by day and the fire by night. God is the one who led them through the Red Sea. God is the one who led them through the wilderness for 40 years. God is the one who was with them and led them as they went into Jericho to attack and won. God is the one who gave Samson his mighty power when he crushed the city, the building. God is the one. And here they are saying, we want to be like the nations around us. As if they didn't notice what God had done. We want to be like the nations around us. We want to have a human king over us. To lead us into battle. To fight our wars for us. Even though God had won their wars for them. (laughs) He led them. They said, we want a human king. And so, God gives them Saul. Saul. And Saul is a corrupt king. Surely he is a corrupt king. Their first king is horrible. We think we have it bad in the United States. I don't care what president you elect. I don't care. They're all horrible lately. If we're honest, right? So God says, I'll give you a king. I'll give you King Saul. He was tall. He was handsome. He was a man's man. Amen. There's a man's man. But he was not a man after God's own heart. He was not. He was not a man after God's own heart. And so we see here in verse 1. The Lord says to Samuel, how long will you grieve over Saul? Remember, Samuel's a prophet and a judge. He's a man after God's own heart himself. He loves the Lord. He's obedient to his will. He's dedicated. And he's grieving over Saul, this king. He's grieving. Why is he grieving? Well, let's turn back to 1 Samuel chapter 8 and get an idea of why he's grieving. Now, most of you have heard the story 
of Saul and David. And you think, oh, Saul was gone. He's a bad guy. David comes in and he's a great guy. Wrong answer. That's not what the story's about. Saul is grieving. It's not about Saul or Samuel. It's not about Samuel. It's not about Saul. It's not about David. It's about the Lord. The sovereign Lord. Let's see why Samuel's grieving. 1 Samuel chapter 8, verse 1. And it came about when Samuel was old that he appointed his sons judges over Israel. Down to verse 4. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah, and they said to him, Behold, you have grown old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint a king for us to judge us like all the nations. His heart has to already be deeply troubled. Samuel is their earthly leader already. God is the true leader. But the thing was displeasing in the sight of Samuel when they said, give us a king to judge us, and Samuel prayed to the Lord. What sadness Samuel must have felt, dedicated to the Lord. And they say, give us a king like the other nations. They wanted to be like the pagan nations that surrounded them. That like abortion, they gave their babies to burn to Molech. Like the other nations, they worshipped on the high places where there was pagan rituals of sexuality going on and prostitution. Like the other nations that worshipped the creation rather than the creator. And they said, give us a king like the other nations. The Lord said to Samuel, listen to the voice of the people in regard to all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. So you might say, wow, God is not doing anything. The pagans are winning. Our nation's in trouble. We got to do something about it. But what does Samuel do? He prays. That's the first thing he does is pray. He reaches out to the sovereign Lord because he knew where the power lies. It's not within himself or anything that he can do. It's all within the Lord. Down to verse 19. Nevertheless, the people refused to listen to the voice of Samuel. And they said, but there shall be a king over us. How stubborn can they be? Now, before we start going to point fingers, ask yourself, how stubborn can we be? How much faith do we put in a political leader? They said, no, but there should be a king over us. That we also may be like all the nations, that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. How mighty an earthly king would be. But God had parted the Red Sea. God led them through Jericho. God is the one that gave them victory. Let's go over to 1 Samuel 14. We'll see more examples of why 
Samuel was grieving. Why Samuel was grieving. Down in verse 17 of chapter 14. Now, Jonathan is Saul's son. He's a warrior. He and his armor barrier go and attack the enemy. Saul notices what's going on. And this is where we pick up the story. Saul said to the people who were with him, number now and see who has gone from us. He doesn't know who's, who's, who's out there. And when they had numbered, behold, Jonathan and his armor bearer were not there. They weren't there. Then Saul said to Ahijah, bring the ark of God here. He's bringing the ark of God here because he's going to ask the Lord what to do. The ark of God had the ark of the covenant inside of it. For the ark of God was at that time with the sons of Israel. So here we see Saul is searching for the Lord's direction. It sounds good so far. While Saul talked to the priests, the commotion in the camp of the Philistines continued an increase. So he hears more commotion. Why? Because Jonathan and the armor bearer have had victory over their army. So what does Saul do? You'd think he'd say, hurry, let's see what the Lord has to say. No, he says, or it says here, so Saul said to the priests, withdraw your hand. Take your hand off the ark. I, we're, we're in a hurry here. We got stuff to do. You guys are going too slow to inquire from the Lord what we should do. Let's get going here. We got stuff to do. He disregards the Lord and his sovereign will. And instead, he decides to do his will. He has confidence in his own numbers. He says, number the people. He has confidence in the numbers of the people rather than the Lord. Down at verse 24. And this is after that battle. You'd think a leader would uh, give his soldiers some rest, relaxation. They just had a hard battle. And here's what it says in verse 24. Now the men of Israel were hard pressed on that day. For Saul had put the people under an oath, saying. Now, you military guys out there will understand this. If your leader, sergeant, whatever, doesn't feed you after you've been working all day. And here's what Saul says. Cursed be the man who eats food before evening and until I have avenged myself on my enemies. So none of the people tasted food. What kind of king is this? He doesn't love the people because he doesn't love God who's sovereign over him. No wonder Samuel is grieving. The king that has been selected, the king that they have, a human king over God is worthless. Here's God that gave them manna from the sky. Quails falling from the sky. Imagine you walked outside right now and food was falling from the sky. That's what they had. And what does Saul do? I'm not going to let you eat until we have victory. What a fool. What a fool he was. Down to verse 
43. Then Saul said to Jonathan, now Jonathan, (laughs) I kind of like what Jonathan does. He comes along and he eats anyway. (laughs) He says, I got to eat. I'm hungry. Then Saul says to Jonathan, tell me what you have done. So Jonathan told him and said, I indeed tasted a little honey with the end of the staff that was in my hand. Here I am. I must die. (laughs) Saul said, may God do this to me and more also, for you shall surely die, Jonathan. (gasps) Really? He's going to put his son to death for eating. This is bizarre. Bizarre. But the people said to Saul, must Jonathan die? Who has brought about this great deliverance in Israel? Remember, he won the victory. Far from it, as the Lord lives, not one hair of his head shall fall to the ground, for he has worked with God this day. You see, Jonathan was working with God. Saul was not. The reason Jonathan had victory is because he recognized that God is sovereign in control. And Jonathan worshipped the sovereign God. For he has worked with God this day. So the people rescued Jonathan and he did not die. (laughs) It's amazing. Let's go over to chapter 15, verse 3. Remember, we're talking about why why is Samuel grieving over Saul? At this point, you have to understand, surely, right? I'd be grieving. 1 Samuel 15, 3. And the Lord um, is giving uh, Saul directions here. It says, Now go and strike Amalek and utterly destroy all he has. Do not spare him, but put to death both man and woman, child and infant, ox, sheep, camel, and donkey. He couldn't make it more clear than that, could he? Well, do you think that Saul obeyed? Well, let's see. Verse 9. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep, the oxen, the fatlings, the lambs, and all that was good, and were not willing to destroy them utterly. Not willing. But everything despised and worthless that they utterly destroyed. So he says, you know what? I'm not going to listen to God. I'm going to keep the good stuff. I will kind of do what God says and get rid of that bad stuff, the despised stuff, but I'm going to keep the good stuff. (laughs) He's utterly shameful as a leader. Verse 28. What is the result of all this? Verse 28. So Samuel said to him, to Saul, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and has given it to your neighbor who is better than you. Wow. That must have come crushing to the first king of Israel. The very first king of Israel. He says, it's gonna, the kingdom's going to go to someone better than you. Wow, crushing for a man who has pride issues. Someone who's better than you? Crushing. Absolutely crushing. Down to verse uh, 32. Then Samuel said, Now remember, he didn't put Agag to death like he should have. 
Then Samuel said, bring me Agag, the king of the Amalekites. And Agag came to him cheerfully. <laughs> and Agag said, surely the bitterness of death is past. Agag says, oh, I'm glad you guys didn't kill me. I'm glad you have a disobedient king. That is awesome. But Samuel said, as your sword has made women childless, because Agag killed multiple people, so shall your mother be childless among women. And Samuel hewed Agag to pieces before the Lord at Gilgal. Who says the Bible's boring? Samuel, I'm going to say that again. Samuel hewed Agag to pieces at Gilgal. Samuel had to do Saul's job. What is going on here? He had to do Saul's job. No wonder the guy is grieving. If you had to hack someone to pieces and that wasn't your job, you'd be grieving too. I'm sure of it. Verse 34, Then Samuel went to Ramah, but Saul went up to his house at Gibeah of Saul. Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death, for Samuel grieved over Saul. He grieved over Saul. And the Lord regretted he had made Saul king over Israel. He's grieving. He's grieving. Now, what does this sadness and grieving do to the prophet of the Lord who's supposed to speak God's word boldly and assuredly and confidently? Hesitation happens. Hesitation. Verse, chapter 16, verse 1. Now the Lord said to Samuel, how long will you grieve over Saul? And that's where we're at today. How long will you grieve? How long are you going to do this? It's not that grieving is wrong because the Lord Jesus himself grieved in the Garden of Gethsemane. It's not that grieving is wrong, but how long will you grieve over Saul? How long will you be despondent and sad? How long? You got a job to do, Samuel. You got to lead my people. You're the leader. Which shows that Saul's really not the leader still. They wanted a king, he gave him a king, but who's really still the leader? The Lord God Almighty. And he works through people like Samuel. So we see that grieving is a process that people go through. But Samuel is grieving for too long. He's not doing what he should be doing. He says... Fill your horn with oil and do what? And go. Go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite. I have a king for myself I've selected. You got a job to do, Samuel. You can't stay despondent. Let's go to verse 2. But, but, Samuel said, How can I go? When Saul hears of it, he will kill me. How will I go? (laughs) And the Lord says, take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. So once again, the Lord is saying, go, take the heifer with you. Go, go. He's grieving. He's like, the guy's going to kill me if I go. He says, go. Kind of sound like Jonah. Go. 
Be obedient. Fear. Fear. The fear of man. He's fearing Saul. Here's Samuel, this mighty prophet and judge. He's already rebuked Saul earlier. And now he has fear. When we face fear, we won't do what God wants us to do. You cannot be overwhelmed with grief and fear. You are a believer in the almighty God (laughs) who has enabled you with the spirit who is ultimately powerful. Do not live in grief and fear as, as Samuel did at this moment. And he is a man of God. But he did deal with grief and fear. So in this section... Uh, we see the fear of man, the fear of man. In verse 3, he says, You shall invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do, and you shall anoint for me the one that I designate to you. So Samuel did. Here he goes. He's finally being obedient. He did what the Lord said and came to Bethlehem, and the elders of the city came trembling to meet him and said, Do you come in peace? Do you come in peace? Now Samuel previously showed fear. If you go back to chapter 3, keep your hand there, chapter 3 of 1 Samuel. This isn't the first time that Samuel has shown some fear. We always think about this awesome prophet of Samuel, but he clearly is a man as we are. 1 Samuel 3, verse 15 And we see here, so Samuel lay down until morning. Now this is after he saw a vision, or he, he's, he, uh, he talked with the Lord. He had a conversation with the Lord. So Samuel lay down until morning. Then he opened the doors of the house of the Lord. But Samuel was afraid to tell the vision to Eli. So Eli was uh, Samuel's uh, leader. He was his uh, mentor, if you want to say it that way. Then Eli called Samuel and said, Samuel, my son. And he said, here I am. He said, what is the word that he spoke to you? He says, what did God say to you? He says, please do not hide it from me. May God do so to you. And more also, if you hide anything from me of all the words that he spoke to you. So Samuel told him everything and held nothing from him. And he said, is the Lord, let him do what he seems good to him. So Samuel, this isn't the first time he's shown fear. We all have fear. It's staying in fear and letting fear overcome you that is dangerous. Well, Christ's words on fear. Let's hear what the Lord Jesus Christ has to say about fear. And I'll just go there myself in Luke 12. Here's what Christ has to say about fear. Luke 12, 4. He says, I say to you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body. He's talking about mankind. And after that, have no more that they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. I'll tell you who to fear, he says. Fear the one who after he has killed has authority to cast into hell. 
Yes, I tell you, fear him. He's saying, fear God. Don't fear man. Fear God. Whether you face persecution, whatever you face, don't fear man. Samuel is clearly facing fear. Another example we have in 1 Kings chapter 19. Let's all turn there. 1 Kings chapter 19. It's right after Samuel. And we're going to see fear at its best. Another one of God's prophets, Elijah. Ahab, this king of Israel. This is after Samuel, obviously. He's a very weak king. His wife runs the show. Her name is Jezebel. And she's evil. She's very evil. She's so evil that she worships uh, foreign gods. Baal. Very evil. She runs the show. So much so that when her husband couldn't get some land that he wanted, she had the guy killed. He goes crying to his wife. He says, oh, poor me. I couldn't get this land. She goes, oh, really? Next thing you know, she has the guy killed. That's the kind of woman that we're talking about here. Certainly not a godly woman. So in 1 Kings 19, starting at verse 9, Now, Elijah has had this confrontation with Jezebel's prophets. And he has uh, called down the Lord to prove that he's truly speaking for the Lord against Baal's prophets. And Baal's God is fake. And God proved it by bringing fire down to consume this altar. And after that, guess what Elijah does? Similar to what Samuel did. He hacks some people to pieces. Like I said, the Bible's not boring. He hacked all of Jezebel's prophets to pieces. And here's where we pick up the story. Because he runs. He's afraid after that. Now remember, God on his side has brought down fire to consume the offer, the altar, proving that he's truly a spokesman for God and God is real and the Baal prophets are fake. He's hacked the prophets to pieces. He's Elijah. But he's afraid. And what does he do? He runs. He runs really far away. All the way to southern Israel in the wilderness. He ends up at Mount Horeb or Mount Sinai which is where Israel, the people of Israel were. Uh, when Moses talked to the Lord on the mountain. He goes to Mount Horeb, Mount Sinai. And he gets there. And then we pick it up in verse 9. Then he came there to a cave and lodged there. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. And he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I have been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the sons of Israel have forsaken your covenant torn down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I alone am left. And they seek my life to take it away. 
So he said, go forth. There's that go word again. Go. <laughs> go forth. Stand on the mountain before the Lord. And the Lord showed him who he is. And behold, the Lord was passing by. And a great and strong wind was rending the mountains and breaking in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a sound of gentle blowing. The Lord's presence is strong. Sound familiar to Moses? The same account on Mount Horeb. When Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his mantle and went out and stood in the entrance of the cave. And behold, a voice came to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? Then he said, I've been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the sons of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. He repeats the same thing over again. I'm alone. They seek my life to take it away. The Lord says, come here, let me give you a hug. Nope. What does he say? Go. Go. Return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you have arrived, you shall anoint Hazel, king of Aram. And Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint king of Israel. And Elijah, the son of Zephat, of Abel-Molech, you shall anoint as prophet in your place. You got work to do. Go. It shall come about, the one who escapes from the sword of Hazel, Jehu shall put to death. And the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu, Elijah shall put to death. Remember, Elijah says, I'm I'm the only one left. Poor me. Here's what the Lord says about that. Yet, verse 18, I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. There's more of you, Elijah. 7,000 that haven't bowed the knee to Baal. You're not the only one. Go to work. Get back in there. Stay in the fight. So fear. Fear and grief. They can block us from doing the Lord's work. But his work will be done. He's sovereign. His work will be done. He says, get back in the fight. And he does. He does exactly what the Lord orders him. He needed a little bit of motivation, I think. Next, we see that sovereignty overcomes worldly desires. Back to uh, 1 Samuel chapter 16. God's sovereignty overcomes worldly desires. You might say, duh, God's more powerful than the world. Of course he is. However, sometimes our worldly desires get caught up in our lives. But God is still sovereign over everything. So we see in verse 16, or chapter 16, going down to uh, verse 6, or I'm sorry, verse 5. So the elders have said, you know what? Do you come in peace, Samuel? Do you come in peace? The elders are trembling. <laughs> it says, do you, do you come in peace? They're trembling. They're so afraid. 
Why are they so afraid of Samuel? Because earlier, Samuel had hacked Agag to pieces. And Samuel is coming on behalf of the Lord. They're afraid. These people are not doing the right thing. They're not living right. They're living in fear. What should the elders have been like when Samuel approached? Welcoming. What does the Lord have to say to us? That's what they should have been like. But they're trembling. And once again, we see fear. Afraid. He says in verse 5, In peace I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. He also consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. He had a job to do. Because the Lord says, you know what? I've selected a king for myself. So Jesse brings his sons to the sacrifice. And remember, Samuel says, uh, you know, come on to the sacrifice, Jesse. We're going to consecrate you and your sons. But Jesse doesn't bring all of his sons. He doesn't do what Samuel tells him to do. We'll see about that in a minute here. Well, in verse 6, when they entered, he looked at Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. This has got to be the guy. Eliab is the oldest. We know that from 1 Chronicles. So what does Jesse do? He says, because the oldest, you know, they have the birthright and everything. He, he sends out the, the oldest and says, Jesse says to Samuel, here's, here's my oldest. And Samuel says, this has got to be the guy. This has got to be the one. Surely, this is the one. <laughs> but, verse 7, but the Lord said to Samuel, do not look at his appearance or the height of his stature because I have rejected him. I have rejected him for God sees not as man sees for man looks at the outward appearance but the Lord looks at the heart. <laughs> the Lord looks at the heart. He's looking at the outer appearance. Now here's what's interesting. We get that Eliab is the oldest, right? We also know that Ishmael is the oldest. So is Esau. And so is Reuben. But the promise didn't go through Ishmael. It went through Isaac. <laughs> Esau, Esau wasn't the one that continued the promise. It was Jacob. <laughs> and it definitely wasn't Reuben. Because here we are about to anoint a new king. And it's not from the tribe of Reuben. It's from Judah. So the Lord doesn't see the way that we see. It wasn't the oldest that was important to the Lord. The Lord looks at the heart. Here's what Romans 11 verse 33 says. Very famous verse and I love it. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. He doesn't see the way that we see. Don't think that God has the mind that we have. That he needs a tall man that can do these things like Saul. He desires the heart. The heart. What is the heart? It's our desire. 
It's our desires, the things we want to do. Think of uh, Cain. He slew his brother Abel. His desires were not of the Lord. How about Lot's wife? She turned. She became a pillar of salt. Why? Her desire was still back at Sodom and Gomorrah. Even in the midst of being saved physically from that wretched city, she still wanted to go back. It wasn't just that she turned her head. It's because she wanted to go back. Her desire was back at this evil city. But on the other hand, how about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? The three men who were thrown into the fiery furnace. Where was their desire? For the Lord. How about Daniel? He ended up in the lion's den. Where was his desire? For the Lord. The Lord searches the heart. The Lord doesn't care about appearance. The Lord searches the heart. He says, don't look at his appearance or his height or his stature. You know, Samuel might have been a little uh, confused thinking that, you know what, Lord, you chose Saul and he was a mighty looking man and handsome above all and taller than everyone else. But no, the Lord looks at the heart. Verse 8. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, the Lord has not chosen this one either. Next, Jesse made Shema pass by. And he said, the Lord has not chosen this one either. Then Jesse, thus Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. But Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen these. The Lord has not chosen these. Who chose The Lord has not chosen. It's his choice who works in his kingdom. It's his sovereign control. The Lord's sovereign control. How many times do we think we have control? We don't. We pray and we ask God for his wisdom. Verse 11, and Samuel said to Jesse, are these all the children? Well, at this point, Jesse didn't bring all of his kids. He's trying to take control. He says, you know what? You're going to anoint my, or you're going to consecrate my kids. That means to set them aside. I'm going to bring these guys. These ones over here. These are the ones you want to see. I'm sure of it. (laughs) Nope. (laughs) Those aren't the ones. Samuel says, Are these all your kids? Is that it? And he said, there remains yet the youngest. He's thinking, the youngest, you know, little ruddy David over there. There remains yet the youngest, and behold, he is tending the sheep. Then Samuel said to Jesse, send and bring him, for we will not sit down until he comes here. (sighs) Jesse says, he's tending the sheep. He's the youngest. He's over there. Remember, uh, Jesse has already brought his, uh, his other sons, it says, to pass before Samuel. But they had to go and send for David. He's not even there. He's not even in the presence of this sacrifice. This is a big deal. Remember, the elders of the city were trembling when Samuel showed up. This is a big deal that Samuel is there. This is no little thing. He only brings the other sons. David, 
You stay over there with the sheep. The Lord doesn't see as we see. He often exalts the unlikely, like the youngest. Well, who else was youngest in Scripture? Like we talked about four, before, Isaac and Jacob, but we got Ishmael and Esau. God didn't choose Ishmael and Esau. He chose Isaac and Jacob. Well, he also uh, didn't choose a mighty man of the city. He's about to choose a man who's a shepherd. David is out tending the sheep. (laughs) Well, shepherds were despised during this time. Often it was the youngest that was chosen to be the shepherd. It wasn't a glorious, awesome job. So here, David is a shepherd, just like Abel and Abraham and Jacob and Moses. What do the shepherds do? They feed the flock. They protect the flock. They keep them from danger. They keep them fed and going forward to the next place to eat. The shepherd tenderly cares for the flock. That's why it's dangerous to, uh, I'm not a, a Bible snob, but that's why it's dangerous to read certain things like the Message Bible. It presents uh, the Lord's sheep as sitting ducks. And you miss the whole emphasis of what the sheep and the shepherd are. We're surely not sitting ducks waiting to get shot, as the Message Bible says. It says we're sheep waiting to be slaughtered. So here is David, a shepherd. And we know that David clearly was a good shepherd. Let's turn to chapter 17 of 1 Samuel. Uh, Verse 34, David is a really good shepherd. You know, we don't walk around and see shepherds here in St. Paul or anywhere near here. So we don't really have a picture of shepherds. But just kind of keep in your mind someone keeping a bunch of innocent, not smart animals. And later on, we're going to see next Sunday uh, that David is a warrior and he's going to go out to battle for Israel. And he has this conversation with Saul trying to prove who he is. And he says, and it says here in verse 34 of verse 17, or chapter 17, But David said to Saul, Your servant was tending his father's sheep when a lion or a bear came and took a lamb from the flock. I went out after him and attacked him. (laughs) Don't look this over quickly. Here's a man who's saying, I went out and attacked a lion or a bear? How many times have we read this to our kids and we looked that over? He went up and attacked a... How many of us would even get close to a lion or a bear? I'll tell you what, I wouldn't. I go to the zoo and I see him through the glass. It's close enough. It's almost too close. He went up and attacked the lion and bear. And rescue the little lamb from its mouth. And when he rose up against me, I seized him by his beard and struck him and killed him. <laughs> wow. Just think about that. A lion or a bear? This is David. And don't go thinking, oh, he's a brave guy. Nope, that's not the point. The point is not about David. He was able to do that because God's spirit was with him. We'll see that in a minute. So David clearly 
was a good shepherd. And I can't, I just can't think about David being a shepherd. And you guys all know Psalm 23. And here's what it says. The Lord, this is David speaking here. He says, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in the path of righteousness for his name's sake. He sees the Lord as his shepherd, and he knows what shepherding is. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil. You are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You have anointed my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and loving kindness will follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. You see what a shepherd does? They protect the sheep. They, they feed the sheep. They give the sheep water. And here's David. This is the one that God has chosen. Not the man who's tall and awesome looking. And No, this is a little shepherd taking care of the sheep. Well, Jesus himself calls himself a shepherd in uh, John chapter 10. I'll go there. You don't have to turn there unless you want. John chapter 10, verse 11. Jesus says this about himself. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who is not the owner of the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. <laughs> he flees because he is a hired hand and is not concerned about the sheep. I am the good shepherd, and I know my own, and my own know me. Even as the Father knows me, I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. You see why the Lord has chosen David? It's not that he had these things in him already. It's because he had God with him. He trusted in the Lord. He knew that God was sovereign and God is mighty and awesome. That's why he can say these things about the Lord in Psalm 23. He saw the Lord for what the Lord said about himself. That the Lord himself is the true chief shepherd. Well, lastly, we see that his sovereignty overcomes worldly power and influence. Worldly power and influence. Let's go back to 1 Samuel 16 here. Verse 13. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him. In the midst of his brothers, and the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon David from that day forward. And Samuel arose and went to Ramah. Now the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and an evil spirit from the Lord terrorized him. Wow. The Spirit of the Lord. Well, the Spirit of the Lord had two jobs in the Old Testament. One being that of regeneration. And people say, well, how did, the Old Test how did the Holy Spirit work in the Old Testament? Because Old Testament believers weren't indwelt. They weren't indwelt. You're right about that. But the Holy Spirit was with them, even though it was not in them. So we see regeneration. 
and also enablement to do a certain task or duty for the Lord, for the theocratic kingdom. In Hebrews 11, it mentions uh, that Abel, Enoch, Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Sarah, Joseph, Moses, Rahab, Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, and Samuel were all, all approved by faith. Not by works, by faith. So they trusted in the Lord. Truly, regeneration had happened in their lives because we know that no man searches after God. No man does good. But these were approved because of their faith. But we know that faith is a gift from God in Ephesians. Romans 4, 2 through 4. For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about. But not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. So we see that there was regeneration in the Old Testament. But here, when we read 1 Samuel chapter 16, we're not talking about regeneration here. When we talk about the spirit leaving Saul and entering David, we're not talking about regeneration here. We're talking about enablement. For example, in Numbers 11, we see that the 70 elders that the Lord gave to Moses were enabled with the same spirit that Moses had to assist him. We also see in Exodus 31 that Bezalel, who helped build the tabernacle, was given the spirit for the sake of craftsmanship. And now we see it in David as king. This is what they call the theocratic anointing for the theocracy, for, the, um, for God's kingdom. He anointed certain people with the spirit in a certain way to fulfill the work. We see a difference in the Old Testament and the New Testament Holy Spirit working. In John 14, 16, it says this. I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper that he may be with you forever. That is the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him. But you know him because he abides with you and will be in you. So we see that the Spirit is already with people, like in the Old Testament. But in the New Testament, they will be with the people. And this is spoken of John before the day of Pentecost in the book of Acts. And the day of Pentecost is the moment which every believer was indwelt with the Holy Spirit permanently. And so we, let's go back to chapter 16, verse 15. Saul's servant said to him, Behold now, an evil spirit from God is terrorizing you. Let our Lord now command your servants who are before you. Let them seek a man who is who is skillful player on the harp, and it shall come about that when the evil spirit from God is on you, that he shall play the harp with his hand, and you will be well. So Saul said to his servants, Provide for me now a man who can play well and bring him to me. It seems like Saul is still calling the shots here. In an earthly way he is. But truly, there's something else going on behind the picture here. What's going on is they're saying, hey, let's, let's get somebody to play the harp for you when this evil spirit is terrorizing you. And that person is going to be David that we can see. In verse 18, then one of the young men said, Behold, I have seen the son of Jesse, the Bethlehemite, who is a skillful musician, a mighty man of valor, a warrior, one prudent in speech, and a handsome man, and the Lord is with him. 
He says, you know what? David. That's the one. So God is providing a way for David to come into this theocracy, into the royal court. David's a shepherd. He doesn't know anything about royalty and dignity and anything. God's preparing David for the kingdom. David's not going to be king for years later. He has all these interactions with Saul where Saul tries to kill him. But God's preparing David for his future uh, kingdom that he's going to rule. He's becoming acquainted with kingdom affairs. He's communicating with men of high rank once he comes in. He's going to gain the confidence and adoration of the people. So they said, let's, let's have this David guy come in and play the harp. Many times we've read that, we think, oh, it's no big deal. He's going to play the harp for Saul. He's going to calm that spirit. No, God is preparing David. He's preparing David. How is he going to gain confidence and adoration through the people? Well, because the spirit has endowed David with many gifts. Many gifts. And we see that in verse 18. Skillful musician, mighty man of valor, warrior. And that's what allowed him to kill the lion. Prudent in speech, handsome man, the Lord is with him. You see, it's the sovereign Lord that has all the power. How many times have you heard that David is so brave? David is so awesome. He's so brave. You know, he went out and killed that Philistine. We're going to talk about that next week. But it's not about David. And it's not about bravery. It's about the sovereign Lord and his plan and his will. You see, David was subjective to the Lord. He put himself underneath the Lord. He saw him as sovereign. Twenty-one. Then David came to Saul and attended him, and Saul loved him greatly, and he became his armor bearer. Saul sent to Jesse, saying, Let David now stand before me, for he has found favor in my sight. So it came about, whenever the evil spirit from God came to Saul, David would take the harp and play it with his hand, and Saul would be refreshed and be well, and the evil spirit would depart from him. Now you've got to be wondering, why in the world would an evil spirit have anything to do with the Lord? Because the evil spirit is from the Lord. He didn't say from Satan. The evil spirit is from the Lord. Why would God allow such an evil spirit to terrorize his new king? Well, first of all, God can do whatever he wants to do. That's right. He sets limits and boundaries on all things. He's using the evil spirit for his purpose. Just as Satan entered Judas... What was the outcome of that? We have Jesus Christ paying the price on the cross for our sins. The evil spirit is even from the Lord. Now the Lord doesn't produce evil, but he uses evil for his own good. So God is in charge of everything. He's ultimately powerful. And now we have David, a little shepherd boy, is in the royal court playing the harp for the current king. And the current king doesn't know he's the future king. Tell me God's not sovereign. He works all things together. Right? For who? For evil people? No. For his believers. Right? But ultimately, it's all for his will, for his own glory, his own divine glory. So, I say to you today, you might think, well, 
you know what? I don't have to face uh, evil spirits or anything like that, like Saul faced. Uh, that's pretty terrible. Too bad for Saul. I'm not like Elijah. I'm not going to run away from Jezebel. I'm not going to do all those things. Really. What does it say about Satan? He's a roaring lion waiting for someone to devour. Just waiting. You're in a spiritual battle. Ephesians 6 says, put on your armor. You are in a spiritual battle right now. And that's why Paul says in Ephesians, put on your armor. He didn't say put it on after you've already got into the battle. He says put it on now before you reach the battle. You can't fight evil on your own. I don't care how many little trinkets you have. You might have a little cross you're going to rub, whatever. You can't do that. Only God can. Only God can overcome evil. We're only overcomers in Christ Jesus. It's when you're with Christ Jesus and you worship him and you desire what he desires and you don't fear man and you're not overcome with sadness and grief. That's when God uses his believers and his kingdom. God is sovereign. His will will be done. Submit to his will. Believe in him. And if you don't believe in him today, if you're out here, I say believe in him. I say trust in the Lord Jesus Christ who says he's the only way to the Father. No one comes to the Father but through me. Be saved from your sin and the results of it, which is eternal torment. You think that evil spirit terrorizing Saul is bad. There's something much worse than that. But if you believe, you will be saved. You will have eternal life with the Father and the Son and the Spirit. Trust in the Lord. Put your trust in him, the almighty, sovereign God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word. We ask that we see you as sovereign. We see you as the ruler of all heavens and earth. And that we submit to your will as we leave here today. That we don't forget the words we've heard. And Lord, we thank you for being sovereign. Amen.